Welcome to the Northeastern Next podcast, your channel for the latest alumni stories in Boston and beyond. In this show, we'll catch up with Northeastern alumni who are out there achieving what's next. An American passport changed her life. Alexandra Tarzakan grew up in Syria, but was able to travel back to the States at the start of the war, witnessing the migrant crisis in Lesbos as a volunteer instead of a refugee. She's dedicated her law career to human rights advocacy and is focused on bringing awareness and activism around the refugee crisis. Hi, Alex. Welcome to the Northeastern Next podcast. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. So when my colleague Alana Gensler passed along your story to me, I was truly inspired. I listened to all of your materials. I listened to a TED talk called Meet a Refugee. And in this talk, you told a story about a young woman, Sarah, just like you, um, attempting to leave her home country of Syria during the war and how the simple addition of an American passport changed your story from becoming a refugee too. And I'll let you tell the rest of that, but let's start with a little bit about you and where you grew up and how you arrived at Northeastern. Yeah, sure. So I was born in the U.S. uh, because my mother is American and Cuban, and I grew up in Aleppo, Syria. So I was born here, but then I moved to Syria. I think I was one, and I grew up there because that's where my dad's from. And I went to a French school there. And when I graduated from high school, that was in 2011. And that is when protests started to occur um, as a result of the Arab Spring in various parts in Syria. It hadn't really, the war hadn't really intensified in Aleppo yet, but, you know, there were some chaos that started to happen around. And I had been planning on coming to study to the States. So I had been looking at different universities. As soon as I graduated, I stayed for the summer in Syria, and then I moved to Boston to start university at Northeastern. But then I thought, you know, the roles would be reversed, where instead of spending my summers in the States, um, I would, you know, go back to Syria and all my friends would be, we'd all be reunited. But then the war really escalated. And so my entire family moved to the States as well. And I unfortunately haven't been back since. But yeah, that's kind of how I came to Boston. And I chose Northeastern really because of the co-op program. So you received your undergrad degree in health sciences in 2015 and returned for law school. So what inspired you to change paths um, so drastically and pursue a law degree? And what are you doing with that now? Yeah, so it's um, it's kind of a long story. So I'll try to summarize it as best as I can. But I went to undergrad thinking that I wanted to become a doctor, that I wanted to go into medicine because the idea of saving someone's life really inspired me. And so I started off as a pre-med student. I was a health science major with um, the pre-medical track. And obviously, the, I did my first co-op. It was very clinical. It was at Mass General Hospital. And I honestly, I don't even know how I was qualified for the position. Um, because in my head, when I was applying, I thought I was only going to be doing um, shadowing work. So I didn't think, you know, it was any, it was going to be anything that was hands-on. But it was actually... 
quite um, hands-on and was very uh, clinical. And so my role, so in the morning, we do nerve hearing screenings for newborns. And that was fine unless you had a, a newborn child that was crying nonstop and you couldn't get the audio to, to work and it was a first-time parent. And But obviously, you know, it was a great experience and you, I got to learn how to manage, you know, those kind of conversations. But then the real hands-on part was in the afternoons when we'd get to work at the Mass Ioneers. And I was working in the audiology department. So we would assist the surgeons in the actual operating room by calling out a wavelength of the response whenever they stimulate on a nerve during different operations that involve ears and nose and throat. So areas that have a lot of sensory nerves. And so it was very intense. It was very hands-on. You know, I had to spend long hours in the operating rooms. You know, it wasn't just a nine-to-five type of job. I would go in super early and I couldn't leave until the operations, you know, surgeries were over. And I, I think it was definitely a learning experience, but I couldn't really see myself dedicating myself to this full time, you know, if this was only a co-op, I couldn't imagine what medical school residency would look like. And so then after that first co-op, I think it's still the case now. I took um, the year required to take a writing class that's specific to your um, discipline. So mine was writing in the health science discipline. And you kind of, it allows you to reflect on your co-op experience. And then you also choose a topic that you want to focus on for the class. So at the time it was 2013. And so the war really escalated in Aleppo, in my city. And I wanted to understand why were hospitals being targeted? You know, are there any safeguards in place for volunteers or medical personnel who are there just doing their job? You know, are there any safeguards in place? And so I chose to focus on healthcare delivery in war zones because I wanted to better understand, you know, what that system looked like. And that was really my first exposure to law. And I was so drawn to it because, you know, it had to do with policy and international law, international humanitarian law, but it was still related to health, but it wasn't in the clinical sense. So um, I, I, I love that. And my professor from the course recommended I look into the joint JD Masters in Public Health program. And so then I decided to do the pre-law minor just to get a sense of what some of the classes looked like. And I, I found them really interesting. And then for the second co-op, I worked at a health rights clinic at the University of Miami. I was at their law school. And truly through that experience, I got to see how you could still get to the same goal of saving lives, but you're doing it through policy and healthcare access. Because through that experience, I got to work with an undocumented uh, client who needed dialysis treatment. But at the time, there was, there's this law that regardless of your immigration status, if you're found needing life-threatening um, emergency care, the hospital can't reject or deny that treatment to you, regardless of your status. But at the time, dialysis wasn't part of this law. And so through that clinic, we got to build the case using medical evidence as to why dialysis should be part of this law. And that, that was to me, honestly, like the turning point. I was like, wow, this is like mind-blowing because the treatment was always there. The doctors were always there. But the thing that was was missing was really the access part and so um so I found that super interesting and you know I, I was like this is exactly what I want to do 
I love stories like that because I think it's what higher education is all about is figuring out your path, right? I think so many people start pre-med or they want to help people or they think they want to do medicine because frankly, we're not exposed to other career paths. It's There's so many ways you can take that. And I love how the co-op experience really showed you what that was when that's such a unique experience Northeastern, you know, students and alumni have that. They don't have to wait till they graduate to then figure that out in a real, real life, um, you know, experience. So I'm here in the U.S. We hear a lot about the refugee crisis, but no amount of statistics and facts can really showcase the extreme and dangerous conditions of these, you know, overfilled small boats en route to Europe. And I'm left thinking, like, really any humanitarian crisis, what can we do? So I'd love you to tell us a little bit about how you got involved with that crisis. Yeah, no, definitely. So like many other volunteers that decided to go to Greece, um, specifically to Lesbos, and for those who don't know, Lesbos is a gateway island for refugees who are crossing from Turkey to get to Greece because Lesbos is the closest island to Turkey. So obviously it's it's a very dangerous route, but it's easier um, to get to, to it from other places. And so at the time when the refugee crisis escalated in Europe, there was a lot of images of people crossing on these makeshift dinghy boats on the media, and which I don't know if people are aware, but there was um, this really famous photo of a young refugee Syrian boy who was originally ethnically, he was Kurdish. His name is Aylan Kirdi. And he was three years old. And there's this image of this young child that's washed up on the shores of Lesbos because, you know, the boat that he was on ended up capsizing. And so seeing that story, uh, seeing that image, I, I was really compelled to just go and see the situation for myself because one, I was fortunate enough to have an American passport and not have to go through the hardships of a refugee. And two, I just felt like I had a responsibility to give back, you know, as a Syrian and just as a, you know, fellow human. And so, so yeah, so then I started looking online for different organizations and I came across the Boat Refugee Foundation. It was a small local NGO. I wanted something small because I wanted to actually be working closely with refugees and I wanted to actually be able to have an impact. And so... I came across the organization. I thought, I knew it was Dutch, but I thought people from all over the world were going and applying to go to this and volunteer in this organization. Turns out it was not the case. I was the only non-Dutch. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it honestly ended up being an amazing opportunity because for me, you know, being with, with people who weren't Syrian at the time in the camps, the big majority of the refugees were Syrian. And so for me, seeing volunteers who weren't Syrian and who had zero connection to the cause, zero connection to the people, did not speak the same language, they were still working day and night just to make someone feel human again, just put a smile on a kid's face. And that to me was true humanity and just so inspiring because they were just doing it out of the goodness of their hearts. And so, so yeah, I loved that experience. I, you know, they, whatever they asked me to do, I did it, whether it was medical triage because of my, you know, pre-med background, or if it was translating for doctors and the clinics, I did that. We also did things like prepare English class lessons for children. Uh, So it was very varied because this was a small organization. So whatever they needed, I, you know, I adapted and I did it 
And it was, it was a really rewarding experience. But again, I went in not really knowing what to expect because it was my first time being in this kind of a humanitarian setting. And I was only going to be there for a short amount of time. So then after I left, I was like, anytime I have free time, I want to go back and I want to volunteer and support as best as I, I, as I can. And so the following time, so in total, I've been to Lesbos four times. The second time I went, I wanted something a bit more hands-on. And so I ended up working with a search and rescue organization, actually rescuing people when they were first arriving from Turkey um, on the shoreline. And I worked with the Emergency Rescue Center International. So we did mostly search and rescue, but also assisted with translation, also worked in the medical clinic as well. And that's where I met my dear friend, Sara Mardini, because um, she was also volunteering there. And, you know, we just hit it off right away because we're both Syrian. We, she also had been interested in studying law and we just had a lot of things in common. So then, so that was the second time. And then the third time I went back again because this time I was already in law school. And so I wanted to try and see if I could do something more law oriented and better understand the asylum process. And so I ended up working with a legal organization there. And that was amazing because I literally served as a bridge between you know someone that was Syrian so I could honestly understand the culture and the background but I was also an advocate because I can actually now understand the law and better you know advocate for refugees who are going through their their asylum procedures and then the fourth time I went back um, because I had graduated from law school and I, I think I still had or no, sorry, I had completed my MPH, but then I had one more semester of the law degree, but, and I had like a, a bit of time off. So I went back um, because I was supposed to overlap with Sada while she was there. And unfortunately, when she was there, we overlapped for a few days and then we went to drop her off at the airport because she was going to go back and, you know, she had volunteered in Lesbos for two years now and it was time for her to go back to university and, you know, really work on herself. And while she was there, um, we went to drop her off and the police ended up coming and they arrested her along with another volunteer. And this ended up evolving into a criminal case against, you know, this notion of the criminalization of solidarity, because they were using, using this as a deterrence mechanism to stop refugees from continuing to cross, because in their minds, in the Greek government's minds, they were like, wow, if there are search and rescue organizations that are set up on Lesbos, that's going to be a pull factor for refugees, and it's going to incentivize them to continue to cross, although that's actually not the case. You know, refugees, when, when they're forced to make these journeys, they're forced to do it because they, there's no other alternative. You know, they're not sitting there on the other side in Turkey Googling, oh, let me see who's going to come rescue me on the other the side. The concept of incentivizing that is just so mind-boggling to me. Yeah. Like, that's, wow. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't work that way. And yeah, but that was really crazy because, you know, like she was put in prison for three, over three months uh, just because she was a volunteer handing out blankets, water, you know, on the shoreline. And, and, and yeah, and then I got involved with that as well. And I got a sense of, you know, the criminal, criminal law a little bit and how that influences humanitarian uh, volunteers. And, and that was really interesting as well. But 
it was just kind of shocking that this is, you know, the world, the, the world that we're living in, a world where volunteers are now put in prison and, you know, actual criminals are, are free and, you know, getting away with a lot of things that, that they're doing. So, so yeah, that's kind of how I, I got involved. Wow. I think it's, it's honestly so powerful to hear you talk about your friends and how you could have so many things in common and then have such a different experience just because of you have an American passport. And I read about recent fires in a migrant camp. And tell us a little bit what the conditions are like in Lesbos. And can you tell us about some of the people you met? Lesbos, like I said, it's it's a gateway island for those who are trying to get to Europe. But uh, Moria specifically, it's one of the biggest camps that is there. So there's, there's Moria, there's Karatepe, which is mostly for those who are like the most, most vulnerable and the conditions are slightly better. But the big majority of the refugees are housed in Moria. And it's honestly one of the worst refugee camps I've seen. It was initially meant to just be a registration center where, you know, new arrivals would come in, register, get their documents and continue on with their journeys. But then as the number of um, refugees started to increase and as the EU started to close its borders, people got stuck on the island and they had to wait months and months, these really squalid conditions. So instead of Moria being a transit camp, it became a detention center. And people who arrived on Lesbos were, were placed in this camp and they couldn't leave until their asylum applications were being processed, which was oftentimes a slow and really bureaucratic uh, process. It was initially meant to house, I think, about 3,000 individuals, but it was actually housing three times its capacity, so up to, to 9,000, 10,000 people. So you can, that can, you can only imagine what the conditions were like and you know, how overcrowded um, it was. And it was so overcrowded at one point that um, people were actually camping in the surrounding forest, so outside of the camp, because there was no, literally no physical space in the camp. And it was made up of, you know, not only Syrian refugees, but people from Afghanistan, Eritrea, Yemen, Iraq, and even the Democratic Republic of Congo. So you can only imagine what that journey must have been like traveling through from Africa to get to Turkey, to get to Greece. So, you know, the stories that I've heard are honestly very horrific. But going back to the camp, obviously there's a lack of water and sanitation. Women fear going to the restroom at night because it's not safe. It's not a place that's accessible for people with disabilities. People have to wait two to three hours in line to get food. The conditions honestly are, are horrific. And it's just really sad that this is somewhere that's at the end of the day, it's in, it's in Europe, you know, it's in the European Union. So that's also kind of shocking because you get there thinking that conditions are going to be better, but but they're not. And year after year, you know, the camp just keeps on deteriorating. So there's never really no actual improvement. And yeah, even with the pandemic, you know, obviously the WHO guidelines, social distancing guidelines in the place that's that overcrowded, obviously that can be implemented mm -hmm. where I think 1,300 people are only sharing one water tap. So, you know, you could just imagine what the situation is like with a pandemic and then obviously with the fire now that I think it occurred like about two weeks ago it left um, 13,000 individuals now with no shelter the situation you know is just very difficult and there's no clear solution or even will from governments to really take ownership and take responsibility for what is happening 
Wow, I think I think you mentioned this in the TEDx talk I heard, but when a lot of us think of a Greek island, it's a very different picture than what you're describing, and it's so horrifying. You, so you grew up in Syria and in, in Aleppo. A lot of us picture Syria as this war-torn country, and you spent so many years there, so I'd love you to tell us what Syria was like before the war started. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I had an amazing childhood. It was one of the safest countries uh, to the point where my mom, you know, could go to a grocery store, leave me in the stroller outside of the store, buy whatever she needed to buy, come back knowing that no one was going to harm me, no one was going to kidnap me. That's just kind of what it was like because everyone knows each other. It's very family oriented and it was just easy to live there. And then, you know, one of my favorite memories growing up is when I start, I was older enough to go out with my friends to restaurants and we'd love just getting lost in these small like alleyways in the older part of the city and then go to this one restaurant that was in front of the Citadel, which is one of the like main historical sites in Aleppo. And it's basically a like large med- medieval fortified like palace. And it's just like really nice to see because it's in the center of the old city. And, and yeah, it was just um, really easy to, to live there. And it's obviously not what it's like today. And it's not what it's, it's being portrayed as like. And unfortunately, yeah, maybe some of the fighting has ceased, but the situation is just very difficult because there's, there's a lot of rebuilding that has to be done. There's still like pockets in the country where it's still unstable. You know, you have COVID cases also, also rising, but there's no more healthcare infrastructure. So I don't know. I, I obviously I'm a very optimistic person and I, I love to stay hopeful, but, but it's still kind of unclear to me you know, what, what the real solution is going to be and what that's going to look like um, down the line. But, you know, you can only hope for the best. Mm -hmm. I can picture you just like, you know, teenagers with your friends hanging out, going to restaurants and things and how someone's experience can be so different just based on these other countries that we, frankly, I didn't know much about. So I'm so glad you could tell us a little bit about it. I remember hearing a talk a few years back at Northeastern from a professor, Serena Parekh, who studies refugees and ethics, and she brought to my attention, I still remember it, this was a few years ago, this concept of home. And this concept is something I personally take for granted. I'm from a small hometown in Massachusetts. I currently live in Boston. I wanted to ask you, where do you consider home and how does this concept change for refugees? Yeah, so growing up, for me, I always associated home with a geographic location or place, like the place where I spent most of my upbringing in, which, you know, was Syria. And I, I mean, to this day, I do still consider Syria my home. But because I'm no longer able to return there, the that notion kind of had to change for me, and I had to redefine what home meant and I started associating the word home not like with the geographic location but more with the people I was surrounding myself with you know with my family and people that I could truly be myself with um, comfortable around but for refugees obviously the definition of home is much more complex especially for for individuals who are not resettled and are still in limbo waiting for their asylum applications to be processed and are uncertain about their future and this is 
yeah, this is, you know, it's, it, it is very difficult because it's difficult to feel settled when you face so many questions about the future. You know, will I be deported? Am I going to be forced to go back? There's this, this home that you've left behind and then one that you're trying to create in a new place, but it, it does become very complex when you're faced with so much um, uncertainty. Where does your friend Sarah live now? So Sarah now is in uh, Germany. Mm-hmm. So she's in Berlin. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about your Instagram account called Meet a Refugee. When and why did you start this? And tell us about the content you post there. Yeah, so I started it back on June 20th, 2017. I had to look look that up. But it was, I know like the date specifically because it was on World Refugee Day. And what I, the purpose of the platform is really to showcase and highlight the stories of, you know, the amazing people that I I had met while volunteering. And I wanted to use the platform to elevate the voices of, of the refugees that I had met. But initially, the reason I started it was because the second time I went back to Lesbos, so the first time I went, I had gone not knowing what to expect. You know, I knew that it was going to be a difficult situation, but at the end of the day, I was going in with, you know, I want to just do my job. I'm not going to try and become emotionally attached to the refugees because I don't, like, I'm only there for a short amount of time and I really don't know what to expect. But I did try and keep in touch with them just to, you know, see if they had any updates on their asylum applications throughout the year. And then when I went back the second time, a lot of the people I had met the first time were still stuck um, on Lesbos. And so now these people, by keeping in touch with them, they were no longer, to me, they were no longer refugees. They were really people that I either considered as friends or like grandfathers or people I really uh, held, you know, dear to my heart. And so then naturally that emotional guard goes down and they started, you know, telling me much more about their journeys. You know, I, I became more inclined to actually listen to, to those stories. And at the time in the States, you know, there was all this negative rhetoric about refugees and, you know, all these stereotypes. And I wanted to kind of try and use my platform to change the narrative. And so when I came back, one of my close friends had asked me to give a talk about, you know, my experience And when I sat down to prepare for that talk, that was really the first time that I had actually sat down and gathered my my thoughts and started to really process everything I had experienced. Because when you're there in the field, you're really in a fight or flight kind of mode. You don't really have the time to mentally process what happens in a day because so many things happen in a day and, you know, you you're constantly kind of on. Um, but then when you leave that kind of environment and you go back and you actually like are, are back in your comfort zone, you start to, your thoughts start to wander to kind of the people and, um, the stories that you've heard. And so after I sat down and gave the talk, I felt like I had lifted a huge weight off my shoulders because that was the first time I actually voiced kind of the things I had witnessed and yeah, so that's really what motivated me to, to start the platform. And it was a way for me both to kind of reflect and it would allow me to process uh, the stories, you know, of people that I would keep on uh, meeting and then also kind of help change the narrative around refugees. 
I think storytelling can be so powerful because it just really humanizes any scenario, even just talking to you on this podcast and hearing your experience and then sharing a little bit about other people. I think it can really go a lot farther than just reading the facts on what's going on in the world. So finally, um, just before we end, can you share a few resources and tips for our listeners on how to get involved or be informed about this crisis? Yeah, no, for sure. So I often I go to there's a website, it's called Migration Policy Institute, and they uh, do a lot of research and allow analysis of various policies, immigration policies, both in, um, in North America and in Europe. And they also have, you know, offices uh, globally as well. And I like that they use like a comparative approach to migration issues, which is often uh, very interesting. There are also many NGOs out there working in the space, and they often publish different reports on what the conditions are like in various camps. Um, Obviously, the bigger ones are UNHCR, the International Rescue Committee, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and they also tend to advocate on a lot of these issues. At Northeastern specifically, there are also a lot of um, ways for people to get involved. There's the Boston Consortium for Arab Region Studies, and it's an international network of different policy makers and practitioners and scholars that come together, and they tend to host a lot of cool events, and they also do a lot of research. I also participated with them in an ethnographic study uh, to better understand migration flows. And they do a lot of work, you know, in this space. There's also a student group called REACT. It's the Refugee Empowerment and Awareness Campus Task Force. And it's a student organization and they um, that a friend of mine co-founded. And they, they're always posting a bunch of different events um, on their Facebook page. Of course, by following my page, uh, Meet a Refugee. Other, like maybe more concrete ways, I would say is contacting local resettlement agencies and seeing if you can help. If you have any language skills, you can help um, translate. You can be a healthcare navigator. You can accompany newly resettled refugees to supermarkets, you know, read, help, help them read their mail or set up a bank account. These are all daily tasks that, you know, are usually second nature to most of us, um, but not to someone who's not familiar with, with their new place. See if you can help someone with their college applications or help them prepare for a job interview. You can obviously donate to organizations on the ground, create a fundraiser. There's, uh, I think, I'm pretty sure it's still there. It's on the second floor of Al Hall. There's this uh, relief drive where they collect clothing, medicines, canned goods, and it goes to an organization called NU de Syria. It's in partnership, I think, with the Center for Spirituality, Dialogue and Service, and they often have, they often need volunteers to help them sort through the donations and prepare and pack boxes and load containers. So and also, most importantly, I think it's it's really important to stay engaged in these issues and, you know, keep reading about them, talk about those issues on, on Instagram, on your different social media platforms, because it is really important, you know, with uh, every day, I, I feel like there's a new crisis that's happening. And it's, it's, uh, it's difficult to keep the momentum going, because I feel a lot of people have short attention spans and... Um, it's very easy to lose that sense of empathy because it can be very overwhelming. But I think, you know, you just need to keep on being committed and um, keep on talking about these issues because 
they're not going anywhere. I think that those would be kind of my words of advice. Thank you so much for your time today. And I'm sure everyone will go follow your page and stay engaged with you. And thank you so much. Yeah, no, thank you. Thanks for listening. You can follow Meet a Refugee on Instagram to stay informed or get involved. For more stories, visit our website, alumni.northeastern.edu slash next. And please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. This is Megan Kirkbrisson from the Office of Alumni Relations. I'll talk to you soon.